Today's guest and your mentor for the next 40 minutes is an England rugby legend, a hugely popular broadcaster and journalist, and a successful business owner in his own right, Will Greenwood, MBE. If you're a rugby fan, Will needs no introduction. But for those of you who may not follow the sport, Will is one of the greatest English rugby players of all time, playing 55 times for his country, representing the British and Irish Lions on multiple tours, and most famously, he played a fundamental role in England's 2003 World Cup winning team. Today, Will is a popular journalist, rugby commentator and analyst for Sky Sports and The Telegraph, as well as hosting his own rugby union podcast. Will is also a fellow entrepreneur and started his own hospitality business in 2011, where he runs family holiday experiences, corporate events and sports festivals. As an avid rugby fan, it was a genuine honour to sit down with one of my heroes and hear more about Will's life and career. We discussed a number of things, including Will's upbringing and the influence his dad had on his career, what it was like to be part of a World Cup winning team in 2003, and what made the culture so fundamental to their success. Plus, Will's tips for anyone thinking of making a bold or difficult career change, and his advice from his own experience of transitioning from rugby into a career in the media. Will has achieved so much in his career and his passion truly shines through in this conversation, as well as his dedication to inspire and help others. He is a brilliant 40-minute mentor, and whether you're a rugby fan or not, I'm sure you will be just as inspired as I was hearing his career story. Due to us recording this from our respective home offices during lockdown, you'll hear a few background noises throughout the episode, so apologies in advance for that. I'm sure you're all used to your Zoom calls being gatecrashed, but I can assure you it won't detract from the powerful insights and inspirational story that Will shares in our conversation. So with all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy the latest 40-minute mental episode with the brilliant Will Greenwood, MBE. Will, thank you so much for joining us on the 40-minute mental today. Um, I'd like to kick this off, as we always do, with a 30-second overview of your CV, if that's all right. Oh, so me, I thought I was, I was excited then. I thought you oh, were going to do a 30 second <laughs> I, I, uh, overview of me. I'm going to give you the power. I'm going to give you the power to do it. <laughs> okay, well, before I do that, I want you to tell me five things you know about me. Oh, I oh five things. You put me on the spot here. I know you've got over 50 caps for England at rugby. You went on three Lions tours. Two. You are a world-class analyst and legend in broadcasting. And also you spent some time working in a bank earlier in your career. Is that four? Okay, one more. And your dad used to be an international rugby player as well. Five. Nice work. Perfect. So what else do you need to know? Born in Blackburn, son of two teachers, went to Durham University, studied economics. Or as my dad said, I, I read rugby and played economics. And <laughs> uh, I went to HSBC. Actually, I joined Midland Global Markets. Okay. Uh, and it's all in the news at the moment because, of course, what's going on in Hong Kong, HSBC... HSBC bought Midland Global Markets, I think, to look to 93, 94, about the time I joined. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did three years in the city, traded foreign exchange and futures. Rugby turned professional. I was going to stay trading futures. And my dad said, don't be a fool. Uh, <laughs> don't be the bloke at the end of the bar who says you could have been. So I asked the bank for a two-year sabbatical. Said, if I haven't played for rugby for England within two years, I will come back. And they said, no problem. I played rugby for England within a year. I was fortunate to be in a great team at Leicester. 
uh, and got picked on the Lions tour. Stayed with rugby, finished rugby, went into journalism. I've written my own articles for the Telegraph for 16 years, written a couple of books. I got picked up by Sky. Uh, I did okay on the first show, so they invited me back. And 17 years later, they're still inviting me back. And in amongst that, I founded a couple of businesses that I uh, sort of run on the side and uh, are hugely enjoyable to be involved in sport, and, and which is my passion and, and delivering sporting holidays, uh, either in festivals or holiday format. I think that's about it. That's um, Dr. Will Greenwood MBE. It's amazing what they'll give you when you win a World Cup. <laughs> and I have more nicknames that you can poke a stick at. Excellent. What is your favourite nickname or the most obscure? I was Shaggy, the cartoon character, although I had a shave today for 10 to 15 <laughs> years. I was known as Barry Chuckle until my tash went this morning. Uh, and my fa- and uh, the one most people know me for because the story is being told in a World Cup quarterfinal in 2003 uh, as I walked, trudged off at halftime getting beaten by the Welsh. A, a group of Pontypool supporters uh, christened me Rodney Trotter. Ah, oh, very good. Well, that's an honour. That's an honour to be uh, <laughs> to get that nickname. Well, well, thank you for that. There's so much there. It's, it's definitely we're not going to have enough time to cover it all. But um, you've had an incredible career, and I'd love to delve into some aspects of it. But starting, you mentioned your dad, who I know himself was a, a fantastic rugby player. I'm interested. What impact did he have on you growing up? Did you ever feel the kind of pressure to follow in his footsteps? Great question. You know, uh, brother, sister, we just grew up, we went to Grandad's Caravan in the Lake District. We went to Uncle Ian's place in North Wales where the promenade was out the front. We had uh, in the boot, there would be golf clubs, rugby ball, football, tennis ball. Dad, as a teacher and as an ex-England coach, could create games out of nothing, just immense imagination, as did my mum, who was a math teacher and a badminton coach. So everything was always not necessarily competitive, but there was always an element of spun of learning, of wanting yeah. to delve and, and tweak and adapt and see what we could take from what, what what's relevant from maths. What can we take from maths and put it into rugby? What can we take from right. cricket and what works in, in there? Uh, so constantly trying to upskill and develop and be better. But there was no pressure really to, to play rugby to a high level. That My old man said, look, in your own time, but the second you knock on my door and say, I want help, then I play by his rules. So it was about 15, 16. I went to him, I'd like to be a bit better. I went, Brilliant. all right, I'll see, I'll see you on the promenade at seven o'clock tomorrow morning. And bang. And the beast thing began. <laughs> that's, that's where it started. So my biggest fans and my Telegraph articles and my mum, when it goes in the paper on Saturday, still 16 years later, she, the newspaper boy will deliver it. Uh, at oh. One minute past eight, she'll have read it and she'll have said, mm, well, I'm not sure about that. You've overcomplicated <laughs> that and done this. And then I'll get the analytical point of view from my dad at about 9.30. And if I go on TV, <laughs> if, I, if I use the same superlative or the same adverb or the same adjective too many times, I get a little text, check my phone at half time, stop saying excellent, stop saying wonderful, <laughs> don't dither, you're speaking Amazing. too fast, William. So that's sort of the, the bubble got that it. I've grown up in. Got it. Um, incredible. And I, uh, like me, my parents are both teachers. And there's, I think there's something about teaching, having teacher parents that can bring the best out of you in, in, in that way. So um, that sounds sound like, he, particularly your dad, clearly, it sounded like you, you had to come to him for when you decided that you were going to take it further. Did you, did, was that the moment of realisation in those teenage years um, that you could go, to, you know, go international? No, no chance. No, I just loved it. Just <laughs> okay. really liked it. I was sort of dropped from the under 15 A's 
at my school. We, we got beat by Bradford Grammar 70 nil at the time I was playing fullback. And the following week, the team went up on the board and I thought, well, there'll be a few changes this week and I, I, I might be under pressure, you know. And I was the only one that was dropped. I mean, Mr. Bennett oh, no. blamed Mr. Bennett blamed seventy nil defeat on the fullback missing all the time. Shame on you, Mr. Bennett. <laughs> My point might have been: what about the fourteen blokes in front of me <laughs> doing the square root of Jeff Hall there? So um, no, at the time it was just. And the reality is, I sort of say, my dad said, "Look, wait until you're ready and come and knock on the door." The reality was, I'd always hopped in the car on a Tuesday and Thursday night and gone down to Preston Grasshoppers. Uh, and run around on the back pitches and I'd always been playing Monday night football he'd always it's, it's strange now in the current environment a 14, 15 year old is not allowed to be on a rugby field with adults or really on a sports pitch with adults mm -hmm. health and safety and rightly so I, I understand all that but in the old days you know I felt safe uh, I felt as though dad wasn't putting me in any un unnecessary danger the, the football became sort of full contact with these old yeah. when you nip round but it wasn't meant to be and the rugby I was never involved in the full contact till I was yeah. about 17 okay. and I was always in and around older people trying to glean bits of information and play alongside and being the skinny kid at the time my nickname was Twiggy and then it became Stickman I had to survive <laughs> on my wits around these sort of firemen who played for Preston Grasshoppers in the front row of a 20 stone, or Wade Dooley was there, or Paul Grayson, who went on to play for England at Fly Half, was there, and John Chesworth is a superstar in Division Four in the centre. I was just, I just had to duck, dodge, weave, go alongside, use my complementary skills to, to make them look better and work alongside mm. them and be accepted. So it really was a sink or swim, yeah, mentality, but I loved that challenge, and uh, I was I had the mentality that uh, yeah, I'll go again next Thursday, Dad, or yeah, can't wait till next Tuesday. And I used to rinse them on the fitness because I weighed <laughs> about thirty five kilos. I can I imagine can a, I can run a decent four hundred. So they used to get really irritated and then <laughs> chase me around the park. I can imagine. Well, it, I guess your career kind of continued to blossom. And then you, I guess that rugby at that time wasn't, wasn't professional. And you, you mentioned working at HSBC. So how did you, how did you combine the, the banking career with rugby? And, and I guess when was the point that you decided actually, you know, this was, I'm going to go pro. Yeah. So, you know, I, I wasn't a rogue at university, but I wouldn't say I, I overworked. I wouldn't say I came out of there feeling as though I'd had my nose to the grindstone or shoulder to the wheel for three years of just studying John Maynard Keynes and capitalist theory <laughs> on the free market. Uh, I just about understood the supply and demand curve. I always remember there's always a theory, the Black-Scholes theorem. I have no idea what it is, but it sounds uber cool. It sounds good, yeah. <laughs> I, I arrived in the city and a friend of mine was playing at Harlequins at the time, so I got a phone call from Harlequins and they said, look, we don't come play here and we can offer you free membership at the gym in the city called the Broadgate Club. I was like, wow, free gym membership. And you imagine I'm an ex-student going down to live in London, living in Clapham, rent. That's, and that's all it takes, yeah. That was all it was. So I signed up there. So what that meant was I would train at the gym after work every Monday and Wednesday. I always knew my routine. I'd know the shop. I'd stop off and pick up some uh, a sandwich straight after and some some mince, head home and cook a bolognese or some fish. Get home about 10 o'clock on a Monday or a Wednesday in the evening. Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'd jump on a train at about 5.30 from Waterloo down to Twickenham, walk to the stoop, train, thumb a lift back from one of the lads, get home about 11. You know, I'm not asking for violins here, but it was work all day, <laughs> get up yep. at 5.30, 
train after work every day, never go to the pub with the lads. Like, oh, come on, come on. So, no, no, got, you know, occasionally in the summer, a couple of beers, but yeah. during the season, Friday, head home, either to an away game, jump on a train up north to Oral or wherever it might be, or chill out home and watch friends on the telly. Saturday, play, drink far too much, end up in infernos in Clapham. Oh, classic. Sleep, the theatre more, actually, the, in Wandsworth is probably more my place. Okay. <laughs> and end up uh, sleeping all day Sunday, iron five shirts, cut, copy, paste, repeat, two and a half years. Basically what I did. <laughs> uh, and, and loved it. And the guys in the city initially thought I was a bit weird. Like, what are you doing that for? You don't get paid for it. Why do that? And it's just, I just love doing it. Um, and it gave me a real focus. I wouldn't say I was institutionalized by boarding school, but I sort of liked to have my days super full. Uh, and that's what happened. And then with Jonah Lomu and Nelson Mandela and Francois Pina and the World Cup in 1995, there was this mad rush to turn rugby professional in the following 12 months. And when it did, as I said, I contemplated not turning professional, staying in the city, because the first contract I was offered for at Quinn's was a third of what I was earning in the city. So it didn't yeah. make any financial sense. So I turned them down. Leicester Tigers found out about it. Peter Wheeler, the old England hooker, jumped in a car, met me at the hotel on the Strand. We sort of had a couple of drinks. He put an offer on the table a couple of days later. And about three weeks later, I was jumping in my Sea Reg Mini Metro, <laughs> driving up to live in Leicester, where on night one, I met my now wife. On amazing. night one. Unbelievable. In a terrible amazing. nightclub. In a terrible <laughs> nightclub called Luxor's, dancing with Austin Healy. Wow. Wow. What a story. Uh, night one. Well, there, it was fate. It was clearly meant to be. And she we hated me. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Oh, I was so drunk. And she, was, <laughs> she was driving all her mates, of which I'm now busy friends with. But it's amazing how something, everything happens so quickly. Your drunken charms worked eventually. <laughs> well, it, within a year of you joining Leicester, you were, you were in the England side. You then went on the British Lions tour. Wrong order. I wasn't oh, in the was England side. Oh, was it Lions first? Yeah, I was lucky. I was oh, the wow. last. I am. I am the last non-capped player to go on a Lions oh, wow. tour. No one's done it since. I did not realise that. Amazing. Wow. So the Lions it, picked me even first. More and then England about, I got my first cap for England in November of 97, having already been on an eight-week Lions tour in the summer of 97. Wow, incredible. Well, I, I think our listeners will be really interested in kind of the road from turning pro to getting those international honours. Kind of what what are some... It, it obviously is an incredible achievement, but probably a lot of us don't know what actually it takes in terms of sacrifices, both personally and professionally. T can you tell us a bit about that, that kind of period of time? Yeah, look, it's really interesting. Again, it's... You do hear all these interviews after someone wins Olympic gold or whatever, and they, and they put into context this Herculean-style work, <laughs> and they've made the challenge into sort of Sisyphean, impossible challenge that no one else could possibly... And I think most of it is we don't want other people to try because it's so much fun. It's like a, the training is like a drug. And I get it, it's not for all, but the hard work and the graft is actually what we love falling off the road machines or the bike actually creates those endorphins, that dopamine, whatever it is that we crave. So genetically I'm predisposed to those sorts, you know, I'm over the corner of my island, the what bike is winking at me because I've got a session in a couple of hours. I know what it is. It's going to really hurt. I'm really look, but I'm really looking forward to it. So the sacrifice I think is, I, I think actually it comes on the personal level. So my, my wife went to, on six consecutive summers, went to all the weddings without me because I was always on tour. I worked a lot of weekends. 
at the time. So weirdly enough, at times like these, I've got a load of friends, but you, 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 your mates have accumulated into little clusters around which they've been used to hanging around within their 20s. So even though I'm close with them all, then perhaps on occasion you're, you're on the periphery of the yeah, group. So, yeah, so it's yeah. quite an interesting. So actually I look back on it now and go, at the time the sacrifices were not. Mm. I'd say for me, I didn't understand the sacrifice my wife was, to, you know, in sticking yeah. with me, going to all these places and, and events and parties solo. And, you know, later in life, it's, it's interesting how it may have had a sort of unintended consequence from mm. the sacrifice that wasn't a sacrifice, <laughs> you know what I mean, at the time. So, yeah, look, there were undoubtedly times when you did miss some great events. But I also got to score a hat-trick at the Millennium Stadium when I played in a World Cup final. So you, you, you tell me now, it's a pretty small yeah. sacrifice to yeah, pay to, 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 to go through feelings and experiences like that. No, I can imagine. And and it's a perfect segue into talking about the 2003 World Cup. Uh, I'm a lifelong avid fan and I remember it very well. I was actually, I'd come from a fundraiser for my uh, rugby tour to New Zealand the night before. And I think I'd snuck a couple of beers and it's, uh, we all wake up to, to watch it. And I, I just can't even begin to imagine what it was like being a part of that. I, I'd love to just know what it was like on that day you know, before the game, what, how did you approach that? And, and can you tell our, our listeners a little bit about what that experience was like actually winning a World Cup and, and what the impact has been on your life subsequently? Yeah, so, I mean, again, I've got to sort of contextualise things a little bit. We'd, and during the World Cup, I flew home. My wife was in intensive care. We'd lost a little baby boy, Freddie, in the September of 2002. Oh. So my mind at the time was just, a ridiculous roller coaster at a yeah, time when you're meant to be really calm and I flying home I was exhausted in amongst it but I wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else I'd gone mm. home my wife had said you got to go back you got to play uh, so it was almost Caro that, that sent me back I went back and uh, rugby allowed me to live again um, when you're being chased around the field by South Africans, you just can't think of what's going on back yeah. home. You just got to stay alive. It's a distraction almost, yeah. In the moment. And then it got to World Cup final week and you could you could, you could compartmentalise it a little bit and understand that the, the biggest battle going on in my life necessarily wasn't taking place in Australia. It was going on at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. Mm. And my wife was doing an amazing job. So... It allowed me to stay relatively relaxed and calm for the start of the week. But I mean, by the time it got to Friday, I was a nervous wreck, like a lot, lot of the players. You didn't want to let the country down. Um, yeah. We'd gone as favourites to the World Cup. Australia knocked out New Zealand, who uh, potentially were the side that had the most chance of turning us over. So you're going into final red-hot favourites, which is you end up then maybe not playing and expressing yourself as much as you would. You'd almost just shadow boxing mm. to keep them at arm's length. That gets you in trouble. Anyway, but that's yeah. later on in the game. And then on the game, I mean, the game didn't kick off till half seven. It's the longest day of my life. I bet, yeah. So, so I, uh, I went back to bed about three times, uh, crashed out, just couldn't, the day couldn't end fast enough. And then weirdly enough, once you're on the bus on the way to the stadium and you get off the bus, you're in the chain, you didn't want the game to end. You didn't want the day to end. You wanted to yeah. stop, pause, Live in this moment mm -hmm. forever because you're sort of on the edge 
of your Everest and the, everything you'd always wanted to do was right there. And the game, I hardly remember a blowing thing about and it just goes so quickly. Yeah. Um, and luckily, I say luckily, we'd spent our whole, we spent sort of four years, actually one of our phrases was removing luck. So that no matter how the ball bounced, what the weather did, how many injuries we got, whether the referee took a shine to us or not, then we would find a way to have more points in the opposition come the final whistle. And I think that's what was the great differentiator of that England team to to many that have followed from many different nations that haven't quite managed to transition from a good team into a great team was, was our ability to never allow ourselves to be consigned to fate to always believe it was in our hands that's uh, it's it's very inspiring i mean did you now that this has happened you've had a chance to reflect on it it obviously had a huge impact on your life and i can imagine the celebrations were, were incredible but what what are your reflections now you look back on that having achieved what is the ultimate you know achievement in in a career yeah i think a group of lads who were okay we didn't storm through the Northern Hemisphere season. We had not all of us went in '98, but some of the lads went, and we lost to Australia 76-0. No Northern Hemisphere side had ever sort of won the World Cup, and at the time we didn't know that would remain so until potentially 2023. And yet, we found this sort of hardcore Praetorian old guard collective that um, stayed pretty constant for those four or five years mm. behind this unbelievable moonshot, nutty professor, innovator, uh, preacher that was Clive Woodward that yeah. always filled our sails and never allowed us to believe anything but glory would be ours. Mm. And finding our way and navigating our way through some pretty tough times. I talked about my... Some of the lads also had some pretty horrific, I mean, really horrific experiences off the field that they had to come through, personal problems. And then this, yeah, this, on the back of that, this ability to keep getting back up Mm. and going, one defeat doesn't make us a poor team, but at the same time, when we won big and won well, we didn't suddenly believe we were world beaters. So we had a really calm, we were, you know, I I teach a little bit of maths. We were sort of like a sign curve but a normal sine curve, no multiplier effect. It wasn't mm. three sine x plus three that goes up to four and down to minus four. It's sort of just yeah. like an oscillating wheel. Every now and again, having some peaks and troughs and we were prepared to ride out the rough stuff knowing mm. that we were only ever one game away from heading back up the curve. And we mm. tried to maintain the top of the curve as long as possible when we could. There was clearly a, a very strong culture within that, that team. And you, you mentioned Clive Woodward had very strong leaders yourself, Martin Johnson, obviously the captain, and Johnny Wilkinson. What do you think made that culture? And what lessons do you think that anyone listening that is leading a team, whether it's in a sporting sense or a, a business one, what are the what are the, the lessons, lessons to be learned from that? Wow, in a 40-minute <laughs> chat. I mean, you need to get involved in some of my team-building days and I'll give you the full eight-hour version. Um, in a nutshell, I mean, I mean, you can really simplify it. You know, a real understanding of a difference between good and bad banter. You know, a real understanding, a moral and ethical line that the lads understood of what could be delivered as constructive feedback what could, but on the flip side, what overstepped the mark and, and what was 
ill-disciplined, negative, energy-sapping, barbed comments. There was an ability with an incredible work ethic, a real relentless consistency. People talk about trusting your instinct, right? But if you trust your instinct without having total control of your basics, then to me, that's just gambling. Yeah. Everyone. I mean, I'm, I can see a 25-yard shot in the Premier League outside the box. I'm going to have a dig at that. You haven't practised it a million times and know exactly how it's like to fly off the foot. You know, Michael Jordan mm. talks about the 9,000 shots that he missed. But you get back to our team, the real self-policing within the organisation, a real delegation of power of leadership from Clive to understand that our purpose was to win a World Cup. The way we would win that would be to be strong in our world-class behaviours, attack, defence, scrums, lineups. But actually his delegation to say, look, this is what we've got to be good at in order to achieve that. But you're going to work out how we're going to be good at that. Yeah. And handing over that ability to allow us. So as we talk, I've often talked about a great deal of freedom within a framework. And so I've sort of listed three or four things there that, that can create this culture, strong on and off the pitch, hugely supportive of each other, very family orientated, uh, very honest and open dialogue, real, you know, collision-rich environment in terms of dialogue in our meeting room. But that was built on the fact that it was always about the betterment of the squad as opposed to propelling individual roles and purposes mm. within the organisation. So, I've, as I said, it's it's not there's not necessarily a binary answer with one no. thing that did it. It was a whole heap of initiatives. You know, the, the, the support of our brains, i.e. the amount of different innovators that Clive got in to come in to stimulate our brains that would just have us exploring different avenues to fixing the same problems, argue, fight, tooth and nail, work out the best one we thought it was, and then total alignment behind the one we chose, mm. uh, having had a really good platform of discussion and debate about which one might or might not be. Yeah. Right, really. Yeah. This wasn't a case of having too many captains uh, or too many chefs. This was understanding about you're given a voice. If you're given a voice, then the quality of listening in the room goes through the roof. If the quality of listening goes in the roof, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because then you know you've got a voice. Yeah. And you're all in and you're all on it. And you there's really I did a podcast recently, I had Damien Lewis on, and he really articulated this really well in terms of acting. If you if you really, really, really listen, then you get totally improvised, unplanned, nuanced, nuanced reactions to mm. everything that's said. And it's a true reflection of what's going on, as opposed to the old classic Blue Peter, I've made a cake, here's one I prepared earlier, and whatever yeah. you said, I'm eating this cake. Yeah, absolutely. No, there's, and there's some real amazing parallels there with some of the some of the best clients that we work with and, and the CEOs and the teams and a lot of the best ones have a very clear vision and mission and they're very strong leaders themselves but they also empower others 
beneath them uh, to to make decisions for themselves to make mistakes but to learn from them but that that kind of being unified by one goal and all buying into it i think is is very powerful well, th- well thank you for those insights i think people find those really fascinating but i want to talk about a bit about post rugby career because you've you've gone on to ha- have an amazing you know career as a broadcaster and an analyst with sky sports and and obviously the telegraph as you mentioned earlier why did you choose to make that that move into the media post rugby and can you tell us a little bit about some of the obstacles you had to overcome to do that why did I make that move I think like all I mean I really I mean the World Cup happened I was 31 years old I managed to cling on for another couple of years uh, and grind it out probably because of the city had changed I mean the crash hadn't happened then but the city I'd left in 96 was very different and I say that be, and what am I saying you generally had to work for a living whereas in yeah. 96 there was a whole host of corporate functions where deals were done where it wasn't necessarily the best client or the best um, offer that won the day it was what level of hospitality you may or may not have reached allegedly I say yes. alongside yeah. all these things <laughs> And I'd started to scribble for the Telegraph. I used to have a deal with another paper that shall remain nameless, but basically it was a ghosted piece. And I'd do the interview after the game on Saturday. And then I'd open the paper on the Sunday and it had nothing to do with what I'd said. So I gave my my friend and my agent an earful every week and he said, will you stop moaning, take the money, or (laughs) we'll rip the deal up and we'll go and find you somewhere else to write for. And I said, well, no one else, no one writes their own. He said, well, zag when they're zig be different so I sort of started I think I had like 300 words a week in the metro which might just have been launching then and then I did a short stint at the FT actually so I wrote for the FT briefly and then I met a guy called Keith Perry at the Telegraph and he said yeah I'll take a chance I'll take your pieces Uh, you got filed every Saturday you got a thousand words to do and I'll have 50 of them in year one it's like wow blank sheet of paper 50,000 words the 10,000 word dissertation that took me three years to write at university suddenly (laughs) didn't seem too bad so I fell into that I'd I'd always I've been invited as a guest when I was injured at Sky to to fill the studio and when I finished a guy called Martin Turner there said um, do you want 10, 10 goes a year so I started with 10 and moved on from there so I wouldn't say it was a sort of global master plan. I wasn't Dr. <laughs> no or Max Blofeld in any way, shape or form with a global domination theory. I was just pootling along and thinking, I really enjoy sport. I love being sidelined. love the analysis of the game. And I love staying involved in the game. And it sort of grew from there. I mean, in the end, it almost, unfortunately, I say this in a strange way, and I still love what I do, but it made it, it's made it very difficult to ever leave and go do other stuff, which I've always <laughs> yeah. had this sort of desire to itch and scratch elsewhere. But here I am still working for Sky and the Telegraph sort of 17 years later. And I think one of the things I'm most proud of, and you know, you're of an age that actually remembers it, the vast majority of people I now sort of watch, certainly I should tell you, the Telegraph is slightly different because of the age demographic. But the vast majority wouldn't even know I played. They just, I hope, quite like listening to the way I talk about the game yeah. and uh, my view on it and the fact that I believe and I hope it's, it's, it's relevant. And that's, that's the transition that's been quite an enjoyable one to make. But it's only been, it's been built on the same work ethic that I had before, which was sort of trying to be the best at things that require no talent. And <laughs> what, what, what requires no talent is just 
watching game after game after game after game, being ready to react on a Monday, having watched all the games from the weekend already, if you needed to do a piece. Yeah. And to be able to critique players, because it is their jobs, you have to remember. It's not just mm-hmm. our plaything that we can abuse and criticise in a sort of clickbait format. There are players and wives and parents and yeah. these are they're, they're doing their best. So being able to talk about it and articulate it in a way that doesn't offend, but at the same time is critical when it needs to be done is, has been a big challenge. But it's one I hope I it's a hope a, a line a line I hope I never cross is in any ways anything personal or mm-hmm. barbed or nasty. And a lot of that was taught to me by the squad I played with. Ah, interesting. Yeah, I, and certainly doesn't come across that as that. I'm a, a big fan of you at your role as an analyst, and I think your passion and enthusiasm for the game seems to be just as, as strong as it was when you were playing for England. So I think that that is something that I think fans of the game love to see. And it's not just it's not we talked it's not just the media. You've you've set up your own business. You mentioned in travel and events with with Austin Healy. You've gone on to do lots of things, but a lot of sports people and and actually just professionals in general when they're transitioning out of something that they've loved and done and into something different it's a it's not always an easy thing to do so for those listening who maybe rugby players come to the end of their career or, or just people looking to transition what things would you advise them to think about to set themselves up for success sort of uh, yeah, in the next I, like I, I think the greatest fear is fear itself i think i think that's theodore roosevelt may have said mm. that in the 30s yeah, like I picked it up from my mum and dad. They, they were never afraid to fail. Uh, they were never afraid to end up with egg on their face as long as they knew they'd committed wholeheartedly to something and, and, and done all their best. Then not everything works. Um, yeah. You know, and I've often used the Dr. Pepper phrase. What's the worst that can happen? <laughs> you know, if you, you know, and I'm throwing a lot of quotes here, but I have to remind myself of them a lot. So one of them is, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. Have a go, try it. And the other one that's come to me sort of a lot later in life in terms of reading is, if you only tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. And that was sort of Mark Twain. And so I try and be really consistent in everything I do. I try to, you know, say no as many times as you say yes and, and try and pick the right projects no ruinous empathy have real radical candor and i'm sure some of them of you would have read that book about the things i do and if it's going wrong know when to cut the rope early and walk away um and when it's going well double down and and, and go again but don't Mm -hmm. assume that what you've done will allow that double down to have the same multiplier effect it might need to reinvent and so i think it's uh yeah i think is there a film with Will Smith called The Constant Pursuit of Happiness? Yes. Well, yeah, yeah, there's something yeah, like that. Something exactly. like that. Well, I've one of the things in the book I'm writing at the moment, I'm sort of trying to filter it down into what I'm talking about. And I think what I'm after is it's the sort of constant pursuit of better. Mm. Not wanting to be perfect, not wanting to win every game, not wanting for every decision to go my way, not wanting for every prediction for the newspaper or on the telly to be right and become a yeah. know-all in any way, shape or form. But actually just continue to expand horizons, listen, learn from other walks of life, mm. 
explore the one percenters and the unintended con- positive consequences and negative consequences that occasionally come yeah. with certain actions, but always with the understanding that you know, it's what I say to my lads on a training field down my local club, and I sort of apply it to my life. What I say to them is, you know, I don't, I'm not expecting any of you to be the next Jason Robinson, but let's let's leave the field today in an hour and a half, just slightly better. Yeah, than right advice. now, and I try, I try to finish each day just slightly better. Doesn't always mm. doesn't always get like that, but that's that's the plan. I think that's something we can all learn from. Now, thank you. Well, we're coming towards the end of a conversation, but there's a couple of things I just really wanted to to touch on that I think our listeners will be interested in. And you've described yourself as as a, a grassroots man through and through. You've done lots of work with various organisations, the School of Hard Knocks and, and others to, to help, I guess, youngsters, perhaps those from underprivileged backgrounds, secure future employment, opportunities, etc. Why is that important to you and to anyone that's listening, maybe running a company, thinking about what more they can do to help those sorts of young people? What's your advice uh, for them? I certainly don't want to be Bob Geldof here and <laughs> say, give us your chuffing money. But I would employ you or in a position of, you don't even need to be a position of seniority in any organisation. I'd be saying, why wouldn't you Mm. want to contribute on a societal level with the experience and knowledge and wisdom that you've garnered over your 25, 30, 35, however many years it is you've been grafting away? Why would you want to keep it to yourself? And I am by no means wanting, I'm not an evangelist and there are certain things that I do which I think are hopefully pretty altruistic and selfless, but there's a whole host of it where I'm, you know, trying to accumulate some money to look after myself when I get a little bit older. So there's one, but there's always plenty of time to to do it. Maybe it's slightly easier for sport. I certainly don't want to judge me. It's easier for me as an ex-pro with a mouthpiece and a, and a sort of social media following and a, and a business support to be able mm. to stick my name to things and beat that drum and people to sort mm. of dance, dance to the beat for a yeah. month or so and then they move on. But my view would be, yeah, again, without sort of being too long-winded and going back to the start, is giving back is it's so not selfless because it's so much fun doing it. So by yeah. definition, it's not a selfless act. Being generous of spirit, I don't think there's any better feeling. And mm. whether it was at School of Hard Knocks or going to the North Pole, raising money for uh, premature birth research, or just down my local rugby club, people say, what, you're at level five? What are you doing down there? Because I love it. And the, yeah. the, the club love it. So uh, we're, we're both, it's a it's win-win. Yeah, it's a win-win. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I, mean, I guess there's something prevalent for right now with the Black Lives Matter movement at the forefront of, of many of you know many minds at the moment. Um, I'd just love to get your view on what the RFU could do more to increase black representation in rugby because it's something that I've thought about for a while. I went to a very multicultural school and I, I think it's, it's a missed opportunity uh, in my opinion. Yeah, look, I think on the field, and by the way, I'm no apologist uh, here, but I think it's always good to... Uh, actually just sit back a second and go, how are we on the playing side? Certainly in the men's game, I think uh, 10 
of the World Cup final squad of 23 were at Bayern. Uh, yeah. I, again, I was clumsy, but I'm earnestly clumsy. Is it, is it BAME origin do you talk about? Is it what yeah, you say? I think, BAME? Yeah, BAME backgrounds. BAME yeah. background. I think in the women's game, that representation is, is not strong enough yet. Mm. So we need to explore ways to get into areas of society whereby we make it more welcoming. I think certainly on the LGBT side, I think rugby is a, is a pretty good place to be around. And I've worked with a couple of teams and organisations within this sector. But again, uh, you know, I'm only giving mm. one side. There might be someone yeah. screaming at the camera going, don't be, I've been discriminated against, for which I don't. Yeah. One discrimination is too many. Um, I think one of the serious obstacles is potentially a, in the leadership level, in the council level, that when we begin to understand that I think the council is 55 and uh, mm. there's, there's one woman and there's one person, there's one black person, and yeah. they're the same. That's Maggie yeah. Alfonsi. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it must be, uh, and you can't be what you can't see. Yeah, absolutely. But there is a danger of asking the old guard to ask the turkeys to vote for Christmas. So yeah. I'm not trying to in any way underplay it or in any way make a a comment that would be misrepresented in terms of making a joke out of it. Mm. But the reality is it is so far down one spectrum that mm. I think supporting Maggie in her campaign to become president of the RFU, I always forget whether it's RFU or England rugby, but if mm. Maggie Alfonsi could become the president and what a message yeah. that would send for the British and Irish Lions, you've got to pick the right captain, but why wouldn't it be Mario Itoji tossing the coin next year with Sia Khaleesi? Yeah. I mean, wow, what a statement that is. But Absolutely. And, and it would be a thoroughly deserved role on the back of his performances. Mm. But, Absolutely. Uh, look, we've just got to, I, I, I do believe... I hope, I do believe that's too strong. I hope that rugby is seen by anyone who goes down to their local rugby club as a place of welcome. Where, yeah. with what it definitely is, is it's the greatest sport in the world for any particular body shape or size. That's Everyone so has a role to play in the game of mm -hmm. rugby from your physical and to a degree mental capacity or cognitive diversity because of what's required in the front or in the back. So I'm hoping on the back of that, then that is a sort of seamless transition to mm. eradicating any potential obstacle that you might have with your sexuality or race yeah. or colour or creed. Thanks, Paul. No, it's really, really great to get your thoughts on that. And I think it's an, it's an important thing for us to discuss. But yeah, I, I totally agree. And I'm all behind that. And Maggie. I sit here, look, I'm not an idiot, right? I, you know, I'm not an idiot. I'm possibly the least diverse person you're ever going to go. I'm sort of 47-year-old white privately educated rugby player. I mean, like, you know, I get it, but... But but you have a following, Will. Yeah, and it, I think it's important. It's, it's really important to hear people like you, you say these sorts of things. And uh, I think that'll be really respected by our listeners, for sure. Well, thank you very much, Will. We, we are pretty much at the end. I've got three wrap-up questions for you. First one is around mentorship, the power of mentorship. Do you have a mentor? You know, or how's mentorship uh, impacted your career? Yeah, so that's a so. Do I have someone in particular? No. Do I have 
five or six people, two of them really close friends, which you might say, well, they can't really be a mentor, but actually, trust me, when they baptise me with feedback, they properly <laughs> baptise me with feedback. And then three or four from different walks of life and organisations that I can call upon and chat through and talk about and come up with solutions and plans, then yes. So whilst I may not have a personal coach, that would be the one-word monosyllabic answer, no. That is so far from the real picture of my existence and life when it comes to seeking out help and support Mm -hmm. uh, from a whole host of different sources. On School of Hard Knocks, we had the, the uh, Mark Prince, who was father of the, the murdered Kayan Prince, the QPR mm. footballer. And when he came and spoke to us one day, he was telling the, the unemployed lads in East London, going, look, find out in life, find out the best in the world, find out the people in your local community who are doing good and doing well, and go and ask them, go and knock on their yeah. door. I'm paraphrasing yeah. what he's saying. And I've always believed in sort of kicking doors down and asking for help good stuff yeah i think we've having done sort of almost 25 of these i think we it's always a different answer but mentorship does come in different forms and i think the the main advice is to to seek it out so that really backs that up and what does the next sort of year look like for you i know you're a very busy man what are some of the the goals and aims for the year ahead yeah so um from a journalistic side and sporting side uh, i can't wait for sport to resume i'm continuing to work for sky and the daily telegraph which gives me a fantastic platform to branch out into other areas from a business perspective we are hoping that when you sort of I've, i've laughed about owning a sort of luxury travel company based out of italy then covid wasn't necessarily the the best piece of business fortune we've had but we're we've 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 done okay we'll be all right we'll be around next year so hopefully we can relaunch some of the offerings we have there we're looking into some domestic festivals sporting festivals uh, as well really excited about a book i've written in lockdown with uh, my great friend uh, ben fennel who was ceo of an advertising agency called bbh for 16 years we'd like to we've got lots of ideas about how we can make that so much more than just a book and one mm. simple offering. So we're working hard on that to, to bring that to life. And then what's really important to me as well is to continue to coach and support my local rugby club as often right. as I can on a Tuesday and Thursday. And bizarrely enough, continue to do a couple of days a week volunteer maths teaching at school down the road because I know it sounds strange. I love in love maths. <laughs> oh, I was terrible at maths, but um, no. Sure. So you were no, no. So you've got me going. You oh, weren't no. terrible at maths, right? What's happened is your teacher didn't find a way to teach you in a way that you got excited about it. You're you're so right. You're so right. <laughs> if you could, here's a question I have for the kids: Can you do a jigsaw? Yes, I think I can just about manage it. Do a jigsaw, yeah. you can do maths. It's different True. pieces flat sides and uh, corner shapes and uh, bits with colour and bits that go next to each other and you just got to work <laughs> out a system of putting, don't worry about the thousand piece jigsaw and get into the answer. That's, that's you know, just find the next little bit that goes I together. Love that. Before you know, maths is a thing of chuffing <laughs> beauty. Oh, 
Well, I've never heard anyone speak of it like that. It makes me want to go back and uh, read my old math books. Uh, but I'm sure the kids that are being taught by you will uh, will really appreciate it. And the fi- final question, Will, for any of our listeners thinking about a big career move right now, what final piece of advice would you leave them with? Oh, I mean, you can't beat Dr. Pepper. <laughs> you know, what's the worst that can happen? Love that. Love that. Amazing. Go for it and good luck. Yeah, and uh, look, yeah, that's it. Otherwise, I'll, if I expand on it, I will take away Dr. Pepper's greatness. I think we will leave it there with Dr. Pepper. Will, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for giving up your time for this. We wish you all the very best. And yeah, anyone listening, go check out Will's book when it lands. Uh, I certainly will. Uh, we wish you all the very best for the year ahead. Thanks. Thanks for being a great mentor. Take care. Cheers, Will. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of The 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.